Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, curator of fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, education programs manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Matt. Hi, Megan. People thought we were done talking about eye-eyes, but I don't know if you and I can ever be truly done talking about eye-eyes. That's why we called it the eye-eye <laughs> Specifically, we have some other fun facts we wanted to share before we move on to our next season, where we're focused on a whole different species. Eye-eyes were recently in the news, all about eye-eyes and their strange fingers and their adaptations to not just pick their nose, right? Like, that seems like an underselling of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, they're they're really getting back there. There is basically an I.I. at the Lemur Center who was documented taking their creepy long finger and moving it all the way back. They were picking way, way back, basically scratching the back of their throat with their finger. If we're familiar with our own physiology, there's there's passageways in your sinuses that are interconnected. You know, if you're ever sick, you can really feel those connections in your face. If you have ever needed to explore a little bit, that is... Just being a primate. <laughs> it's part of what we do with our fingers. Uh, I think you made the observation earlier to me that uh, our fingers and our nostrils are the same size. <laughs> <laughs> so it feels like a natural fit, literally. <laughs> Just wash your hands. <laughs> Always wash your hands. That's the message. It is, like I said, amazing that the eye-eye picking its nose was a Duke Lemur Center eye-eye. You know, really, really proud of what these creatures can do here. And it really needed to get back there and take care of some important business. And now that we've talked about the uniqueness of eye-eyes, we wanted to talk about another surprising animal that shares some traits with eye-eyes, actually. They're they're special among primates, but there's some other creatures out there that are around in our world today that have some of these unique eye-eye features. Many people who know me know I love eye-eyes and I love possums. So I'm really excited that the other animal that has a crazy weird finger adaptation is a striped possum. They are native to New Guinea. And they are uh, marsupials, as all possums are. Um, and their fourth finger, not their third, like the eye eye, their fourth finger is going to be specially adapted, extra long, and have a hooked, strange claw at the end of it. And they do very similar behaviors to the eye eyes. They will tap along, um, drumming, kind of listening for a good spot. They have specially adapted teeth where they can chew right into the side of the wood. And they send that finger in searching, and they hook grubs or other kind of insect-like creatures to bring them out and eat them. So that brings up an interesting conundrum, which is we have eye-eyes in Madagascar, we have striped possums in New Guinea, we have similar but not quite the same adaptations. Does this mean that marsupials and primates are more closely related than we thought? How do, how do we navigate this set of information in the context of evolution? Well, one of the things that we can say is using genetic information from a possum and genetic information from an eye-eye and compare it to each other and compare it to a whole bunch of other mammals. We can put together a family tree and observe that possums are not closely related to lemurs. In fact, the striped possum is more closely related to really anything else that has a pouch or doesn't have a pouch that we would call a marsupial. So kangaroos, wombats, um, that whole group actually that possums fit in is called diprotodont marsupials. And diprotodont literally means two teeth in the, that face forward, and they're basically buck teeth. And so kangaroos have these buck teeth, wombats have these buck teeth, koalas have these buck teeth, and a whole bunch of possums have these buck teeth. And those buck teeth look a whole lot like the buck teeth that we see in an eye-eye. And so what's kind of cool about 
what it means to have like buck teeth is we see it in rodents, we see it in possums, we see it in eye eyes. How do all those animals use those adaptations, even though they're distantly related to each other? When we have similar traits on distantly related branches of the family tree, we call that convergent evolution. Convergent because they are all converging on basically similar biological strategies or solutions to biological problems. And so having teeth in the front of your face that is chewing through tough stuff that wear away can be made a little bit stronger if they're really long. <laughs> if you basically have like teeth that stick forward that have long roots that are growing all the time. And so that's something that rodents and eye eyes and diprotodont marsupials have all figured out is through the course of natural selection, teeth getting worn down, eventually kind of unplug themselves <laughs> and grow into these chompers that can just go through tough material that the possums can use to go through wood and use their crazy little finger just like an eye eye to hook something that's underneath the bark. And I, one of my favorite examples of conversion evolution with primates and other animals is one that a lot of people have noticed on lemurs, which is the little circular fingertips on the ends of their fingers and toes that make them look like they have little gecko hands and gecko feet. And obviously, those are really opposed ends of the evolutionary spectrum in terms of how closely related animals are. But if you're clinging to a tree, it makes sense you cannot, you're going to need more surface area, even though it evolved completely separately. There is this idea of adaptations to solve a problem. We think of evolution as kind of a just-so story where an animal wants to get at a fish, and so it evolves flippers and the ability to swim. But you have to go from being a thing on land to a thing in the water, and so there's these steps that have to be taken, and every step has to work for that generation of animals. They have to be adaptive able to have babies, able to get food, able to get shelter, able to avoid predators with whatever anatomy they have in that generation. And slowly over time, some of those adaptations might start to look really dramatic and it becomes very clear in hindsight what those adaptations were kind of pushing towards. But at any point in the course of the evolution of an organism, we might find a structure that seems to be adapted for one purpose, but if we could fast forward 15 million years in the future, it'd be totally different structure for a whole different adaptive reason. And you're bringing up one of my favorite things about evolution, because when, much like a larger example of science in general and how it's taught in schools, at least from my perspective, was that science has logic and reasoning and an answer for everything. That's kind of what you learn when you're going through your kind of school curriculum, because it's also much simpler that way. There's easy answers to test. There's a correct answer. There's a wrong answer. But really, in terms of evolution and in terms of the wider field of all of the sciences, it's constantly evolving, right? Our understanding of it's constantly evolving. And there's not necessarily a reason for why something happened, right? It just happened. So evolution is just, it looks really methodical, right? It looks really intentional. Like how amazing that the I.I. adapted all these very specific things to fill this really specific niche because none of the other lemurs were doing it. But there was no conscious decision at any point in that process. There was no original founding I.I. who was like, you know what, I've noticed a gap in the market for grubs and I think I'm going to fill that gap. There's this way we speak about it in an anthropomorphic kind of a way that says, ah, the I.I., filled these needs because there was a gap in the environment. Well, eh, kind of, but it, there was no intentional step along the way, which is kind of beautiful when you think about it, because it just is a series of random accidents that form together to make this amazing animal that we see today. When we're talking about the eye in particular, 
how much evidence do we have for those little steps along the way of the process? Like, how did how did we end up from a regular five-fingered mammal hand to a pseudo-thumb adding a sixth digit and a very strange middle finger? Almost none. <laughs> Which is a bummer! The fossil record of Madagascar is very frustrating. Patchy at best? Patchy at best. We should say, particularly the mammal fossil record for Madagascar, right? Because we have fossils from prior to the age of mammals, like the famous Majungasaurus that was featured in a lot of recent Jurassic World types of things. What is the most recent, recently extinct relative of the I.I.? Where do we see some of these same adaptations showing up in the sub-fossil record of Madagascar? So we do know that there was at least one other species of I.I. that was alive only a couple of centuries ago. Um, in cave sites around Madagascar, there are little bits and pieces of an animal that's called Dauntonia robusta, which just means like the beefy I.I. because it's bigger. It's like a it's it's a an I.I. that was kind of like one and a half to two times larger than a modern I.I. and that animal. Again, it's not known from a complete skeleton. It's just little bits and pieces that are washed into mostly cave sites. Cave sites, basically like sinkholes, are just a place where you get a flooding event, you get a lot of water, and it's kind of like move things that are on the forest floor down into these sinkholes. And so the place where we find kind of recent fossil record of Madagascar is what's essentially the drain of Madagascar. Stuff that's kind of accumulating at the bottom of, of a, a natural sewer. Um, and... I.I.s aren't the most populous animals in the island of Madagascar. Um, you're very lucky if you see one there, and it's both because they're nocturnal, but also because there's not a lot of them. They're not ringtails where there's like dozens of them living together. And so an I.I. that died, a giant I.I. that died, and then its bones getting swept into a cave is a pretty rare thing to have happen. We have arm bones, we have some leg bones and hips, we have some teeth, including teeth, fascinatingly, that have holes bored into the side of them. And so it's clear that humans had at least found the teeth of these giant eye eyes and put holes in them. Um, what they were doing with that, we could hypothesize that often when humans put holes in objects, they put a string through it and then loop it around something, maybe making a necklace or a bracelet or something like that. And that's something we see in, in lots of human cultures, like the bear teeth and eagle talons. Like the, these kinds of amazing biological structures are worth saving. It's important to note that Robusta, Dabuntonia Robusta, the giant I.I., and Dabuntonia madagascarensis are both living together. We find the bones of the giant I.I. and the modern I.I. in the same caves. These are not animals that the, the small I.I. is not the descendant of large I.I.s. These are two species that were living together, and we just have lost the big one, and the little one persists. Interesting. So that's kind of our midway point in the evolutionary story, right? And then how much further back do we have to get before we find the next closest I.I. relative that we have evidence for? And where do we have to go? The fossil record of Madagascar goes dark about 20,000 years ago, where then you go back, and it's not until like 65 million years ago, which is when you get the dinosaur fossils, that you start to get good land-based fossil records from Madagascar. For geological reasons um, that basically have to do with where and when mountains got built up in Madagascar and how erosion is taking place, there's just not a lot of new rock being built where you're preserving things. Madagascar is just a very old piece of land, right? Like, it's been isolated and in a pretty similar state in terms of geology, not in terms of the landscape and the habitat, obviously, for just 
tens of millions of years, right, in a way that you just don't see in a lot of other islands, especially in the world. Yeah, and and that's part of why wherever you are listening, there may be fossils in the rocks nearby, but it's not all of the fossils. You can, like, I grew up in southwestern Ohio where there are lots of trilobites because the way that the geological history of southwestern Ohio has worked, there are rocks from hundreds of millions of years ago exposed to the surface. If I lived in Colorado, which I really wish I had when I was growing up, there were dinosaurs. I wanted to be able to walk out my door and find dinosaurs in my backyard. Um, but the reason there are dinosaurs in the American West and not in southwestern Ohio isn't because there weren't dinosaurs like living in Ohio. There definitely were. Like Ohio was above ground. North Carolina was above ground during the time of the dinosaurs. Okay, so the trail runs cold in Madagascar. Do we have anywhere else that we can find any II-like animals in the world? In Madagascar, we don't have the story. But we do know from genetic evidence of things that live in Madagascar that most things that are in Madagascar today find their origin in the mainland continent of Africa. Africa nearby Madagascar. It makes sense that the island of Madagascar has a lot of things that are kind of populating it from this larger continent nearby. And so that's true of a lot of the plants that are in Madagascar, that their closest relatives are in Africa, and that's true of lemurs. And so scientists have been looking at the fossil record of primate teeth in Africa for a while, trying to find, like, this is one of the things we want to find. We want to find, like, great-great-great-great-grandma lemur in the mainland African fossil record to kind of tell us when and where lemurness got started in Africa before it made its way to Madagascar. And so for a long time, everyone was still looking. Until there was a researcher named Greg Gunnell. Greg Gunnell was the second director of the fossil collection at the Duke Lemur Center. He was a paleontologist who like, wrote the book on all kinds of organisms. Like he, he was a true mammalian paleontologist in that like mammals of any kind got him excited. Greg went to a fossil collection in Nairobi, Kenya, the Kenyan National Museum, in fact. And so he opened the drawers from a site that uh, collects fossils from like around 20-ish million years ago. And in that, he found the jaw of a creature called Propato. Propato is a genus assigned to an extinct creature that was found in the 1960s. And Propato literally means before potos. And Pato is a name for basically lorises that live in Africa. Lorises are these very cute kind of giant-eyed animals that live in Southeast Asia, and then Pato's that live in Africa. They're each other close relatives. And so Propato means the thing before Pato's. And that made sense when this thing was discovered. It had some features that reminded the researcher of Pato's. It was found in Eastern Africa. Today, Pato's are found in Central Africa. So it makes sense. These guys are living together. But then as soon as it's published, another researcher comes in. That researcher had spent a lot of time looking at fruit bats. And he gets a look at the pictures of Propato and says, I'm very sorry that you named it Propato because it is actually a fruit bat. (laughs) And so this flying mammal uh, is what we're now thinking of as Propato. And so for a long time, Propato was kind of this problem name where it's like, oh, it's called Propato, but it's not actually a primate. It's a bat. And so now Greg brings a unique 21st century perspective to this fossilized jaw that was named Propato because he was an expert both on primates and bats. So he is able to kind of weigh in with like, okay, 
I recognize the features that you see as a primate. I recognize features that this other person saw as a flying fox or a fruit bat. Now it's time for me to, like, see what I think. And so when he looks at the specimen, he saw a different mammal altogether. Greg wrote this amazing email to a whole bunch of his other colleagues who also study primates and said, tell me I'm crazy. Here's the pictures. Here's what I'm seeing. What do you see? Do you think, like, check me. And what he saw was an incisor root that was really, really, really long that went all the way underneath the molars that looked like basically the, the ever-growing tooth of, or something that could lead to the ever-growing tooth of an eye. He also saw these kind of weird button-like teeth along the tooth row that look a whole lot like an eye. Eyes have these really just, their teeth don't look like any other kind of primate. Um, and other scientists took a look at it and agreed that this might be the oldest known relative of eyes that had ever been discovered. And so it's from this time period that was tens of millions of years older than anything that we'd found in Madagascar. Um, and it was in mainland Africa. <laughs> and that, that kind of rigor of science is so awesome. But also what he saw because of his expertise was, was crazy. Everyone said, I think you got it, Greg. <laughs> what a wild observation. So we have the surprise from the one end, right? Because we have this huge gap and we're going back a couple tens of millions of years earlier than any other I.I. relative we've ever found. But I also happen to remember when this was fully described um, because it was within my tenure at the Lemur Center and my whole job is interpreting information from the scientists to the public. And it caused a big shift in how we thought about the story of lemurs in general getting to Madagascar, right? Because we've been talking specifically about I.I.s. You've been specifically focusing on that lineage of lemurs. But if we go out into a broader picture of lemurs, what I had always been taught and been teaching is that sometime pretty soon in terms of evolutionary scale, after the age of mammals starts, is when you have lemurs evolving, and pretty soon into that is when you have them getting to Madagascar, because there had been, I don't want to say assumption, but there had been a common thought that when the lineages branched is when they moved over to Madagascar. So basically, you know, the lemurs branch off from their other primate relatives, they give them a tip of the hat, they hop on a boat, they get to Madagascar. But of course, we know it's much more random than that. And so still the thought process was probably like a group of lemurs managed to get to this island through the natural rafting. And it was probably sometime around like 50, 55 million years ago. And then we have Propato in mainland Africa 20-ish million years ago. This changes our whole conversation, both about how lemurs get to Madagascar and how eyes evolved respective to their environment, because now we're looking at an eye-eye-like animal living in mainland Africa with a different environment and habitat that you have in Madagascar at the time. And the likelihood of convergent evolution of those weird, wacky eye-eye teeth happening in mainland Africa at the same time that it's happening in Madagascar, now evolution may be left up to chance, but that's a heck of a chance. That's a heck of a bargain to make. You're looking at like billion to one odds, probably. So now we know, whoop, we have at least at least two natural rafting events that occur where you end up with these lemur-like primates or lemurs, depending on where you're looking in history, ending up in Madagascar, which changes everything, everything about how we know lemurs got to Madagascar. And it's fascinating as an educator being stuck in that position because it's not like, you know, Greg Gunnell publishes a paper and everyone gets an email notification or a notification on our phone and it pings and it says, hey, update. Lemurs definitely got over in multiple rafting events, and the Propato is evidence of that. As part of the analysis of Propato, Greg Gunnell, working with a bunch of other colleagues, 
in the fossil collection here at the Lemur Center, dredged up an animal that had been described decades before from Egypt, from a site that was 15 million years older than the stuff that they're working in Kenya. There's a thing that was found there called Plesiopithecus, which means like the primitive monkey or the primitive ape. And that thing had been connected to lorises again. (laughs) We have this thing that has like a tooth that sticks forward, which is a loris trait. That's why this keeps happening is that these animals have like teeth that stick forward, but the molars had always been kind of confusing. And so no one had ever been totally sure what to do with Plesiopithecus. As they're doing their comparisons and running their analyses, looking at the teeth of eye-eyes compared to the teeth of Propato, compared to the teeth of all other primates, what they discover is that Plesiopithecus is also fitting into the same eye-eye Propato chunk of anatomy. And so there it looks like we have kind of an evolutionary sequence, or at least relatives through time. Problem is, we don't have hands. <laughs> of Propato. We don't have hands of Plesiopithecus. We can hypothesize that these animals that have these forward-facing teeth that look a lot like a striped possum's tooth and look a lot like an eye-eye's teeth might have had hands that were built for kind of being able to get in there and, and snag grubs from the holes that they're boring with their front teeth, but we don't know. And so the hunt continues. And so basically what you're telling me is that you're doing a giant puzzle with like three of a thousand pieces. <laughs> yes, but at least we have three. <laughs> it's true. It gives you some some clues and some information to work with. And honestly, I find that really encouraging, though, because it speaks to something you've talked about a lot, which is you should never think that science is over and done with. Science is an ever-evolving and living creature. And even studying paleontology, things that have long been dead and gone and you think are literally set in stone, like quite literally, are not at all. And with new information comes new discoveries and and new things to figure out and then new things to interpret back to the public. Once we figure out, oops, we had that slightly wrong before. We just didn't have all the information that we thought we had previously. And now we get to adjust. There are some cases where things maybe go a little hilariously wrong as we're studying in the fossil record and some assumptions that get made. And I think you know exactly which one I'm going to have you talk about, right? Which is um, snorkeling Megalatopus. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And we so when Megalatopus, which is the giant, almost gorilla-sized lemur that was living at the same time as the giant eye-eye, when it was first discovered, it's got it's got a weird skeleton. It's got hips that don't look like a lemur that we would find today. It's got a head that has a very long snout and its nose is kind of built in a slightly different way that some early paleontologists hypothesize that this was a potter-like or seal-like. It also had really big hands and feet. That's an important part of aquatic megalatopus hypothesis (laughs) is that you have basically paddles, like what they interpret as paddles. And you have our, our first, like, aquatic primate, which is a very exciting thing. Turns out you find a little more of the skeleton that when you compare the way that its muscles would have attached to its bones, what you're dealing with is just, if you get a lemur that is that big, it's going to rearrange the way its skeleton is structured because gravity behaves differently on a really big heavy animal than it does on a small light animal that can hop from tree to tree. And so the, unfortunately, the aquatic Megalatopus hypothesis came crashing down as we gained more information from the fossil record and got a bigger and and more expansive picture of what Megalatopus was capable of. It doesn't mean that the folks who had the fun and creative idea of a swimming Megalatopus, they were working with what they had. And that's part of 
why we save specimens. That's part of why museums have this role, both as an educational space, but also a research space. There are questions and ways of interpreting those skeletons, ways of interpreting the very rocks that are surrounding the bones that I haven't even thought of yet, that that there are researchers who are constantly thinking of creative ways and new questions to ask that go back to old specimens. And so part of the value of collections is holding things for different kinds of expertise, different kinds of questions, and different perspectives kind of come in and analyze those things so that the Propato specimens were sitting there in the National Museum of Kenya, available to a researcher to reinterpret the specimen that had been found decades before and just help perpetuate the story of eyes Because really, that's what we're here for. Greg Gunnell couldn't have made this... I don't want to say discovery, couldn't have made this observation without his years of experience in his specific field. And so there's never any way to know for sure if you're getting it wrong or right. But those kinds of creative thinking, those kinds of ways of viewing the world and asking those weird questions are the only way we can advance, right? So basically don't be worried about being wrong. Just try. Ask the question. Do the thing. Amen. So we've been hard at work recording another season for you. We are hoping in early 2023 to introduce you to the wonderful world of ring-tailed lemurs. So kind of the opposite end of the lemur structure, right? Yeah. This is, if you want to do a little bit of homework, figure out where your closest ring-tailed colony is. Your, the local zoo, probably if they have lemurs, they're going to have ring-tails. Most people, if they have seen a lemur, have seen a ringtail lemur, which are beautiful animals with a lot to teach us about lemurness and a lot about primateness and a lot about humanness. They're the, the poster child for all of the lemurs in the zoos. However, I think we kind of take them for granted because of that, because we just say, oh, yeah, that's a ringtail lemur. I know them. I've seen the movie. I've seen Madagascar. We all get the like to move it, move it line all of the time. Um, and that's great. And that's wonderful. But there's so much more to learn about them. And we're really excited to share it. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you and goodbye for now. From Matt and Megan and all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center.